Oh, well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. And this morning we're going to continue our trek together through the uh, Old Testament book of Malachi. Today we're at the last part of Malachi chapter 3. It's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship there. There's also a children's version for those kids who are going to stay in the service. And then if you'd like to, you can turn there in the chair Bible there in front of you. It's found on page 754. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. So Malachi begins with God coming to his people and saying, I have loved you. And it's good it starts that way because it gets pretty rough after that. God comes to his people. This is not a cantankerous old prophet standing on the street corner yelling at all the people who don't know God that they need to straighten up. This is God sending someone to his people saying, I love you, but we need to have a talk about some things. We need to have a do better talk. And so we get this very intense do better talk, but it's always based in this promise that I have loved you. And so we're still in that context of God coming and saying, you're my people, I love you, but we have some problems. And so with that background, would you please turn with me now to Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Again, it's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship. This is God's word. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we will call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've chosen to condescend to us that we might know you. And so we pray, Lord, that this morning you would speak to your people, that you would give us truth, give us conviction, change us, critique us, Lord, that we might be more robust disciples. We pray, Lord, that your gospel would be seen in its beauty. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen. So the main issue in the book of Malachi is that God's people have been fearless before him. But that's not a compliment. They have no awe. They have no respect for him. It starts out right after he says, I have loved you, with him asking the question, where is my fear? Specifically, we saw this in the last passage where they thought so little of him that they refused to bring in their tithes and their offerings simply because he wasn't worth it. In their view, they had been taken away for over a generation into captivity by Babylon because he had been defeated. And so since he couldn't defend them, he wasn't that great. He wasn't worth that much of a sacrifice. They really were not that impressed with him anymore. So they fearlessly ignored his commands. And so God has brought about 
the promised curses of the covenant. He made them his people. He said, I will bless you if you do this. I will curse you if you don't. So he's doing exactly what he said he would do. So their drought, their economic hardships, their poor quality of life, it's all a direct consequence of their lack of fear of God. They see the nations around them doing so much better than they are, and they asked, where is the God of justice? And now they're looking at those same nations again, and the people actually decide to switch teams on God. But we're also going to see that there's a remnant, a faithful few who have stayed and they stick with God even in the difficulties. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Orphans exhaust themselves by performing but adopted children are secured by fear. So we're going to see this difference between orphans and children. And we're going to see these ideas that this, this harsh treatment of God leads to a rejection of God, a rejection of being human. But then we're going to see that the Lord treasures those who fear Him, and He vindicates their faithfulness. So it starts right out here in verse 13. We're calling prophet over people. He says, you have used harsh words against me. You have used rigid words, severe words, not the words of a humble, worshipful people, but these are bitter, resentful, defiant words from defiant people. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, God said their words had wearied him, but here, this is next level stuff. God says in the kids' version, I think I put it, that you have been saying mean things about me. See, God confronts his people for being hard on him. And I want to stop there and think about that for a second. For a second. So in the ancient Near Eastern world where this is, takes place, they, like most traditional cultures of that day, they valued strength. They valued courage. They valued valor and, and bluster. If you're skeptical about the Bible... I challenge you to look honestly at this picture of God. Here is God coming to them and saying, your words have hurt me. It's not a very traditionally masculine thing to do. It's not a picture that an ancient Near Eastern culture would value at all. God's showing vulnerability. It's bad optics is what we would say. If someone's just making this up, they're just writing their myth they need to do better research because this is not going to resonate with their culture. See, whenever you come across something in Scripture that is so out of touch, even with its own culture, you need to have the intellectual honesty to sit back and go, man, that's not how you would write something if you're making it up. That's only how you would write something if you're describing something that's true. And that's what we see here. God confronts his people. And as we've seen over and over again, when God's people are confronted, they don't take it well. Here's how I put it for the kids in their verse 13. Look how I put it for them. They respond back with, whatever, how have we said mean things against you? See, they're indignant. They asked, and so God says, okay, well, I'll tell you how you've done it. And he shows that he has overheard their conversations. So he quotes them back to him in verses 14 and 15. So look at me at verse 14, what they've said. God says, well, you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or, or uh, walking as if in mourning before the Lord of hosts? See, they said it's vain to serve God. It's empty. It's worthless. It's false. This is the same word as in the third commandment. 
And we see here they are really taking the Lord's name in vain. They said, you are worthless to us, God. We're left with no doubt as to the state of their heart. They say, there's no profit in this relationship. And profit means what you think it does. Following you doesn't pay. You're worthless to me. See, they want the stuff. They want fertile land, fertile flocks, fertile wives. And God's not paying out. And so they're saying, well, if this religious slot machine isn't hitting, let's move down a couple chairs. Maybe this one will be hot. Let's try this one. And that complaint that they come say, you are worthless. Following you is no profit. It's actually really profound. They're actually rejecting three specific things here in this Old Testament context. The first thing they're rejecting is they're rejecting God's worship. Those, that word serve and that word keep, when, they, when those two things are put together, that's the umbrella concept for what the priests were supposed to do. The priests were to serve the Lord and keep his commandments, and they were to lead the people to do the same. You, here's how I want, want you to think about this. It's an old phrase, but how many people have heard the phrase out and about? Go ahead, raise your hand. Right? Yeah, where is this person? Oh, they're out and about. And it means they're just doing normal stuff, right? I have no idea where they are. They're just doing their normal thing. Right? If you're not a native English speaker and you learn English as a second language and someone says to you out and about, you have no idea what they're talking about, do you? Because those two words don't mean that. So too, in the Old Testament, serve and keep became an idiom that meant more than what they said. It was an idiom for worship itself. So if they said, oh, he's serving and keeping, that means he's worshiping. Calvin retranslated this verse, God was worshiped in vain. So this is about worship. They say, we are no longer going to serve and keep. We are not going to worship you. We reject worshiping you. And then notice how honest they get. If you look there on, your, on page 10 at, at verse 15, it says they were walking around as in mourning. They admit we're walking around as if. We're not actually. See, we're acting out this religious facade for you. We're acting out repentance. We look very sincere. We look very much like we're into all this, but we don't really mean it. See, they proclaim worshiping you is worthless. We're tired of trying to impress you. We're tired of jumping through your hoops. You don't work. We reject worshiping you. But they also reject being human. That's a weird thing to say, I know, but stick with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want you to see this. They are rejecting what it means fundamentally to be human. At the very beginning of the biblical narrative, in the garden, before what's called the fall, God actually came and he defined what people are for. I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. See, God's plan for humanity from the very beginning is y'all are going to serve and keep creation. Our role as image bearers is shown when we serve and keep right where God has put us. This is the original design for humans. This is what people are for, to worship the creator through serving and keeping where he's put us. So with that background, now look again at verse 14. Notice what they say. That you have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? They're rejecting. They say, we will no longer serve and keep. They are specifically rejecting God's plan for humanity. You don't get to tell us what it means to be human anymore. We're rejecting you. So they've rejected his worship. They've rejected what it means to be human. And now they reject God himself. They look at the nations around them. 
Commonly in the Old Testament, the other nations are called the arrogant. And they say, no, they're not the arrogant. They are actually the blessed ones. God no longer gets to define what's good, what's bad. They proclaim the evildoers aren't the bad guys. They're the blessed ones. God doesn't smite them. In fact, they prosper. So either God doesn't exist or he actually really favors the bad guys. Evil is actually good to this worthless God. They've rejected God. Now, we put those three things together, and there's actually a really profound application for our time and our culture today. There's this progression here, and our culture has lived it out. Once you reject the worship of God, the idea that you're a creature, he's the creator, he's worthy of your worship, that coming to worship has has this vertical component. Once you reject that, you still have a culture that likes religious services. You still have a culture that has some pretty full churches. There's this religious impulse, they'll call it, and it's, it's mainly horizontal. There's nothing vertical because God's not worthy of worship. And, there's, and religious services are basically seen as irrelevant and harmless. But then it progresses to an outright rejection of God where his word is rejected, his existence is rejected, And houses of worship are all of a sudden no longer seen as irrelevant and harmless. They're seen as harmful because you're in the final stage of rejecting humanity. See, if God no longer gets to define what humanity is, if everyone else gets to define what humanity is, a place like a church that believes in a transcendent, God-given definition of humanity is a threat. We have seen Malachi 3 lived out in our life, haven't we, in our country, on the issues of abortion, of homosexuality, of transgenderism, all of which are a rejection of God-defined humanity. The church has debated them like they're issues of morality, but the culture actually gets it. They're issues of theology. If there's no God, there's no definitions, and so there's nothing to debate. We just reject what you say. Now, don't get all excited. That's as far as we're going to go into the culture war. I know some of you get real fired up at this point. But now, let's turn around and let God's Word look at us, too, okay? Who's He talking to right now? He's not talking to those foreign nations. He's talking to His people. These are the religious people talking such smack about God to God. They're done with Him because He hasn't worked out. Do you see what they've done? They've made an idol out of religion itself. If they do the rituals, if they attend the ceremonies, then they are better than the people who don't, and so God will pay them for that. He'll give them a good life. They've been trying to manipulate God in order to get a good life through religious faithfulness. We can so often be like that, can't we? We fall into this religious performance mentality where we look to our faithfulness. We look to our beliefs. We look to our giving. We might even sometimes look to our voting patterns instead of resting upon the work of Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. And we get bitter when God doesn't pay out. We've done all this stuff. How come my life is not working out? I remember in my late 20s, 
I was so angry at God. I, I had been to seminary, and yet I was still sitting in a cubicle, not selling insurance in corporate America. I wanted to work in a church. I'd been nominated to be an elder in a church in my 20s, which is great. I was like, can, can, you, can I be a paid elder, maybe? The Lord was just blocking me from being in ministry, and I was so bitter. I was so angry. Finally, out of frustration, I remember I just, one summer, I just declared, you don't exist. I'm an atheist. Throughout the day, I would just say, you don't exist. I, I don't know who I was talking to. We're about that, but because I was like, fine, if you're not going to pay out for me, God, I'll show you. I reject you. Yeah. That's exactly what God's people are doing here. We've done all the stuff, and you're not paying out, so fine. We reject you. See, just like I was not acting like a child who was beloved and needed to trust, I was acting like an orphan who had to jump through hoops, so too they've shown their heart. They've never been God's children. They're orphans who assume they have to impress to get love. Because orphans exhaust themselves doing that. But adopted children are secured by fear. And we see that now as the text changes in this next section. We see God starts remembering a treasure. Malachi takes a turn. Finally, in the book of Malachi, we get a turn. For the first time since that question in chapter 1, verse 6, where's my fear? We finally get a positive answer. Look with me at verse 16. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Finally, we get a group of people who fears the Lord. They revere him. They value him. Instead of complaining about God to each other, this group speaks to each other good things about God. In the midst of the same trying time, the same economic hardships, the same hard life, they don't get mean and resentful. They mutually encourage each other. God hears it, and he's honored by it. It draws his attention. It even says he puts it down in his diary. In the ancient Near Eastern, king, uh, kings would, uh, would have this thing called a book of remembrance. If you remember when you were, you were here when we did the book of Esther, Xerxes had one of these things. He remembered and what they do, they would write down things they didn't want to forget. And later on, because they didn't have any entertainment like television, when they couldn't go to sleep or they, wanted, they had some time on their hands, they would have this book of remembrance read to them and they would remember some good things about their life. Okay, we don't really do that. So here's another way to think about it. Uh, we, we made the official switch in the church office this week and at my house. We flipped the big red switch and Christmas music started playing. About a week early for us typically, but you know, we just couldn't, couldn't help it. And there's a song that came on almost immediately on my, on my Spotify station. I was like, is that a Christmas song? I'm like, oh, I guess it is a Christmas song. It's from a 1959 musical, The Sound of Music. It's called My Favorite Things. You could probably start singing it right now, couldn't you? Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. And then she goes on and talks about all the challenges in her life and says, you know, what happens when I get to all these challenges? I simply remember my favorite things, and then I don't feel so bad. And that's what a book of remembrance is. God says, y'all are my favorite things, and I want to remember your faithfulness. What a great picture of our Lord. In direct contrast to verse 14 where his name was taken in major vain, here it's honored. Instead of God is nothing to me, here's a group saying God is everything to me. Instead of God, you're worthless, here is God, you have surpassing worth. And it gets even better. In verse 17, God calls him his treasured possession, his favorites, his children. 
Oh, Christians, hear that. We don't serve God in vain during difficulties. He may not immediately send us help, but His faithful people, especially in hard times, are His treasure, and He will vindicate us. At this point, Malachi starts looking forward in time, and he doesn't fully understand what he's, what's being revealed to him. He has no concept of this, but somehow he knows that one day, someday, God will publicly vindicate his children. Now, you and I, with the benefit of the New Testament, we know that this is what's called the new heavens and the new earth, where the ultimate renewal of all things, when history finally reaches its goal and God comes down and he eradicates evil. He gets rid of futility, he stomps out injustice, and he wipes away sin. But it won't be pleasant for everyone. Verse 18 tells us that as God publicly acknowledges his children, there are also those who will be publicly spurned. He says in verse 18, you shall see it, it won't be secret. Those who complained worshiping God is worthless and those who've said we will serve the Lord will both be publicly labeled and known. And before we assume we're the good guys in that story, we need to be honest about our own hearts, don't we? How often have our lives or our thoughts or internet history screamed out worshiping God is worthless? See, we're not going to be proclaimed God's favorites because of our works, because of our faithfulness, because of how hard we try. That's how orphans think. If I can impress this person enough, maybe they'll love me. But secure children don't think that way, do, do they? Instead, look with me at, at the last part of verse 17. God says, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. You see, we as children we recognize that the only way that we could ever be spared as a son on that coming day is because of another day long ago when God did not spare his own son, but instead offered him up on the cross for our hard words, for our complaining hearts, for our rejection of God's worship, our rejection of being human, our rejection of God himself. Jesus has been called God's delight, God's highest treasure, his beloved son, and he died on the cross so we could be transformed into God's treasured possession, his beloved kids, adopted in Jesus, able to call God Father. Now, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our hardships, those things that make us want to cry and make us want to complain. We remember our standing before God. It's because Jesus left the glories of heaven and entered into our world of disappointment and futility. He himself experienced the same junk we do. And yet, in all of that, he remained a faithful son to the end. And when we place our faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord, we're put in union with him. And this amazing thing happens. God says, his faithfulness becomes your faithfulness. So when I look upon you, I don't see this struggling sinner. I see my son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the gospel. That's what Malachi's trying to get his mind wrapped around and share with his people here. I hope you see, hear that. And it's not about how hard you work. It's about how much Jesus did for you. And you can be found in him 
when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, Lord, that comes and that challenges us. That cuts us, Lord. That points out where we, good religious people, good church-going, good Christians have made an idol out of Christianity itself. Lord, even now, would you bring us conviction? Would you show us where we have tried to manipulate you instead of resting upon Jesus Christ alone? Would you give us repentance, Father, that we might walk in freedom? And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you, that, Lord, that they have heard your gospel, that you would set them free from trying to jump through hoops to get a good life, and they would instead, Father, place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. We know you can do this, so we ask that you would build your kingdom even now. In Jesus' name, amen.